Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to Surgical Readings. This is your host, Dr. Rick Green. And on this edition, I am pleased to welcome a friend, colleague, and uh, clearly uh, an expert in vascular trauma, Dr. David Feliciano, who is clinical professor of surgery at the University of Maryland, attending surgeon at the Shock Trauma Center at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, and also an associate editor of Selected Readings of General Surgery. David, welcome. Thank you, Rick. Good to be here. Well, this, this particular podcast is dedicated to vascular trauma and fits very nicely into some of our recent recordings that we've done. And uh, clearly, you're the expert in many of these areas. I want to ask, first of all, um, you know, a patient comes into the emergency bay, obviously, uh, in most level one and two trauma centers, we have everything available. But Tell us a little about your thoughts about the, uh, the role of the physical exam in uh, evaluating uh, the patient with a, a vascular injury. Well, there have been some recent uh, articles disputing the value of the so-called hard and soft signs of vascular injury, more uh, directed toward uh, occlusion versus bleeding, but there's obvious overlap. In patients with real hard signs, uh, external bleeding, signs of a fistula, a thrill, and a brewy, total occlusion, meaning they're uh, pulseless at the ankle or the wrist, or they have a giant pulsating hematoma. Those are patients with hard signs. And in most locations of the body, they don't need any imaging. And in most studies, about 95 to 98% of these individuals at a subsequent operation will be found to have an arterial injury. There's a small subset where these signs are false positive. However, there, there is also a small set of patients like this where some preoperative imaging may be valuable if the patient is stable enough or you can put a pressure dressing on and these would be people who have injuries around the thoracic outlet where you know the, the exposure may involve a thoracotomy, a lateral cervical incision, a median sternotomy. And in those locations, if the, again, if the patient's stable, you may want to do a CTA just to verify whether there's actually an injury and which vessel is involved because there's so many choices for incision. The other place is really any shotgun wound to the extremities. 
The problem with shotgun wounds, particularly if they're further away from the victim is that you get, as you know, a wide dispersal of pellets. And there's no point in opening the entire medial arm and forearm if you do not have an arterial injury except in one or two locations that are close to one another. And actually there's a third area. If you have patients with injuries at different parts of an extremity, particularly like the thigh and the leg, uh, before you dive in, it's really helpful to be able to limit your incision if you know where the arterial injuries are. If it's just above the knee, fine. If it's just below, fine. And so there, there are some small indications for doing imaging in people with these hard signs. In people with soft signs, you know, proximity of a missile, uh, stable hematoma, history of bleeding at the scene, or a neurologic deficit, which could be very close to the adjacent artery. You know, we've gone through all sorts of phases over my 45 year career, but in general, in the modern era, a good physical exam as uh, popularized by the fellows at uh, Jacksonville back in the late 80s is really pretty effective. Uh, if you don't have a big hematoma, you have a good pulse distally, it's unlikely you have a major arterial injury. And if you're still unsure, you know, you certainly bring the patient back for imaging in a couple of weeks if necessary, or you just rely on your physical exam in the clinic. If nothing develops after what you consider to be a good physical exam, that's fine. Just you need to warn the patient if you suddenly get a cold blue foot or you get a big lump in your groin and you feel pulsations underneath come back to clinic and will image you. So there are patients in whom we don't do anything but a, a physical exam. The major modification in recent times has been the ready access of CT arteriogram, where you don't have to go through all the wires and guidelines and whatnot, as we did with our routine arteriograms performed in radiology. So a good exam can tell you if you have a significant injury and in most series, you know, they only miss two to 4% by doing good physical exam without subsequent imaging. Sorry for the long answer. No, these are, these are valuable points. And I, I, I think certainly the, the soft and hard signs. I want to go back to something you said about the stable patient, because uh, again, uh, as, you, as you note, both of us have seen situations where patients have been taken to a radiology suite and crashed uh, uh, in the CT scanner. So in your view, what are the types of patients that you would not, if you didn't, let's, let's say in the average hospital, they don't have a, a whiz bang set up in the trauma bay uh, for CT angio. Uh, what, what would be the situations where you would not want to go in and get imaging and, and forestall going to the operating room? In patients, particularly with penetrating wounds in one area of the body, if they're hypotensive, you can pretty much uh, assume that they've bled in the field before they got to the trauma center from the damage caused by a bullet. 
And in the extremities, you know, there's muscle and nerve and soft tissue, but giant arteries proximally. So if they are hypotensive and you can't explain it other than one location from a missile wound, I would take them to the OR. The problem in blunt trauma is, you know, it's multi-system and they could have a ruptured spleen and or a pelvic fracture and or other causes of hypotension. And in those patients, depending on how well you're able to stabilize them, you should do imaging if your physical exam is at all questionable to prove that their hypotension is not related to say an injury in the extremity. So it's common sense as so much of modern trauma care is, if you can't restore a patient's arterial pressure with one or two units of blood in most trauma situations, they're probably bleeding. And if you're not sure whether it's the trunk or the extremity, even with your exam, because if they're really hypotensive, uh, you can have diminished pulses, for example, in both lower extremities. And until you restore their pressure and detect a difference, you may not know what to do. So if they're really hypotensive after a bullet, I'm pretty committed to taking the surgery with blunt trauma. I may want to do some imaging. Though clearly blunt vascular extremity injuries are not the most common thing in the world, honestly. For most series of gunshot wounds uh, to the thigh, it's really, even with a femur fracture, it's, it's less than a couple percent to have an arterial injury if you don't have any hard signs. These are valuable points, and I thank you for going over that. You mentioned uh, the, the axillosubclavian vascular injuries that are so common, especially in the uh, penetrating world. Go over again the, the, the approach one should use. What are the kinds of incisions that you think would get you to that area most expeditiously? Because uh, we've seen all sorts of uh, tragedies with these kinds of injuries. What are your thoughts on that? The uh, subclavian and axillary arteries are uh, somewhat deep. And if the patient is truly exsanguinating and you don't have access to a balloon that you can float upstream from the radial or brachial artery, then tamponade can be attained with passage of a balloon catheter directly into the a bullet track or stab track with sequential inflations to try and tamponade the bleeding until you get formal vascular control. If the patient's really in shock and you do not feel a big operation is warranted after you get balloon tamponade, you can actually leave the balloon in place with those arteries until the patient has been resuscitated and then do either an open repair or an endovascular repair. As for formal open operation in a patient who's, uh, let's say, stable enough to undergo the time it takes to get to the, these vessels, the subclavian has three parts to it. The first part is in the supraclavicular area and proximal to that and it's proximal to the scalenus anicus muscle. The second part is behind the scalenus anicus muscle. And the third part is distal to the scalenus anicus muscle. 
to get control of part one, if you're an inexperienced surgeon on the right side, you may end up doing both a median sternotomy connected to a right supraclavicular incision to allow you to sort of go down almost into the mediastinum where the anominate artery bifurcates. On the left side, if you really need control proximally, you have to do a fourth intercostal space incision anteriorly and actually go into the chest from the left side. And then you can clamp the left subclavian artery as it comes off the aortic arch. It's a bit posterolateral, lateral, so it's not the easiest thing to get up there with a fourth interspace incision, but it does allow you to get a clamp on the proximal left subclavian in the chest, but extra pleural. For the second portion of the subclavian artery, the vessel can best be exposed through a supraclavicular incision, but because it's so deep, many uh, surgeons who have not done this may find the exposure very difficult. And the two options to improve exposure are first to divide the clavicle on either side with a gigli saw. First, you scrape off the periosteum off the clavicle, making sure that the subclavian vein is not adherent to that periosteum. Then you just pass a, zig, a giggly saw underneath this and saw the clavicle in half. And you can then put a towel clip into either of the divided ends and have a medical student or a resident lift up. If you want even better exposure, I'll take out the middle one third of the clavicle, again, by using a periosteal elevator and then dividing the clavicle at the one third mark on either end. And once you take out that segment of clavicle, it really opens up the view. And I've always saved that segment of clavicle in a sterile saline bowl on the back table because I, my intent is always to put it back in at the end of the operation. You'll see in the books, the choice to disarticulate the sternoclavicular joint I'm always wary about telling people to do that. This joint is surrounded by large, heavy ligaments. And just to divide them, even with the electrocautery, takes a bit of time. And I've never done that exposure, honestly. The third part of the subclavian artery dives down behind uh, the clavicle there. And you may need to extend your supraclavicular incision out a little further loop the second portion and kind of lift it. Uh, it. Again, you may need to take out a portion of the clavicle to get ideal exposure. The axillary artery is below the uh, clavicle and also has three parts. The first part is proximal to the tendon of the pectoralis minor muscle. The second part is behind that tendon. And the third part is beyond that, down to the lower border of the teres major muscle. To get to the first part, you can make an infraclavicular incision and get to the very short segment first part. 
simply by dividing the pectoralis major muscle fibers. And if you can't really see well, you can detach the pec minor tendon off the coracoid process of the scapula. That will actually give you exposure to the very short part one and a little bit longer part two. Part three, uh, you can extend your infraclavicular incision out more laterally or angle it down toward the uh, biceps, triceps groove on the upper arm. And this, again, will get you very good exposure. On rare, rare occasions where bleeding is occurring rapidly and you don't have proximal control, you can actually take the tendon of the pectoralis major muscle off the intertubercular groove of the humerus bone and flip the whole muscle medially. I'm trying to remember if I've ever actually had to do that, but if you do it, you wanna divide that tendon a good sonometer or so away from the humerus because you will want to put the tendon back at the end of the operation. And by dividing it off the bone, gives you enough distance to pass some big heavy sutures and reattach the pec major tendon uh, to the humerus. So these are deep exposures. The brachial plexus is around both the uh, subclavian and axillary arteries, the clavicles in the way, the vein is adjacent. So you can see that there's not much enthusiasm to do these in the endovascular era where the patient can be stented easily. However, there is a subset of patients who are bleeding intrapleurally and you need to get control. So you need to know how to open the chest, for example, on the left side, get proximal control with either a clamp and or your fist up in the apex of the pleura, and then do the supraclavicular dissection to get formal control of the injured artery. In other circumstances, uh, an animal tear without much bleeding, thrombosis, uh, AV fistula, the endovascular surgeons have really demonstrated that with uh, some type of balloon passage and then a stent, they can fix most subclavian axillary arteries if the patient's not actively bleeding externally or not actively bleeding intrapleurally. Well, you've given us all the, the important tricks and how to get there. The question I would have here, what's the role of, of the temporary shunt? You're there, you're looking at the injury. Should we shunt these patients? Are we worried about flow to the distal extremities? And, and what should we do? With the subclavian, you know, we have amputation figures from Dr. DeBakey and Simeone's famous article presented at the Southern Surgical and I don't recall the exact amputation rate, let's say if you ligate the proximal or mid subclavian, but it's really small. And I have arteriograms on probably two patients where the proximal subclavian on the arteriogram is completely occluded from the bullet or wherever, whatever. And the patient intermittently has a normal pulse at the wrist. And if you do a delayed arteriogram film, the collaterals proximal and around the shoulder are incredible. So if you're really, really in trouble, you can certainly ligate it. Um, 
if you don't know if it's the patient's dominant upper extremity, then a shunt is always worthwhile. And you would have to use a pretty large shunt in the artery to maintain patency. So instead of using the usual 12 French, you, you might go to something much larger if you need it, even a thoracostomy tube. So shunning is always appropriate for a large artery anywhere in the body. God made them large because they, so, you know, they have a real purpose rather than uh, ligation. Have I shunted subclavians? Occasionally I have, where it took me a while to get control. The base deficit was significant. And the only caveat is that when you bring the patient back and put in your graft, you might want to measure compartment pressures on the volar side of the forearm because the shunts hardly ever deliver normal arterial flow by volume. It's inside the vessel. It's only so big as compared to the regular lumen. And particularly if you've ligated the subclavian vein, you're probably, you are at higher risk for compartment syndrome. Again, primarily in the superficial and deep volar compartments of the forearm. I'm always fascinated in my career how reluctant younger trauma surgeons are to measure compartment pressures when they're unsure if there's a compartment syndrome. And we had a case last week at Shock Trauma where there was de debate and dispute, oh, do we need it or do we don't? And I, I always say, measure the pressures. It's an imprecise way, but normal compartment pressure is about four to 10 millimeters in the extremity. And if your, uh, if your pressure in the musculoskeletal compartment is over 35, which exceeds capillary arterial flow, and my suggestion has generally been with ischemia reperfusion syndrome to do the fasciotomy before you take the patient to the ICU so you're not back in the OR six hours later. Uh, again, I'm in a minority. Most orthosurgeons and trauma surgeons just squeeze the extremity, which is nonsense because the most the compartment that struggles the most with ischemia is, of course, the anterior compartment of the leg, and that's between the tibia and the fibula. And you can't possibly feel with your fingers whether the pressure in that is elevated. So I just get an 18-gauge needle, attach it to a arterial line up to the anesthesia monitor, and take a couple pressures at different parts of the anterior compartment. And whenever I get to 35, I just do the fasciotomy in the lower extremity and or the forearm. But, you know, the orthopedic surgeons have a whole different philosophy, right? They get elevated compartment pressures only in the area of the fracture. So they're not dealing with ischemia reperfusion. They're dealing with a hematoma in one part of the extremity. Hence, they are so reluctant to do fasciotomies, particularly around the tibia. And they actually use, you know, the white sides differential rather than an absolute compartment pressure. And I'm always wary when the orthopods say, oh, no, he feels fine. You know, I think you ought to just check because I've certainly missed one compartment pressure 
elevation in my career when I didn't me uh, measure it. And a high school football player lost his anterior compartment. So that was a tragedy. David, these are great points. Uh, and uh, I hope our listeners uh, uh, really follow your recommendations. We've been talking to Dr. David Feliciano, uh, clinical professor of surgery at the University of Maryland, uh, attending at Shock Trauma in Baltimore, and uh, one of the uh, associate editors of Selected Readings in General Surgery. David, thanks so much for being on Surgical Readings today. As always, great talking to you, Rick. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag Surgical Readings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.